According to oral history of the South Coast town, Helen Church recalled, South of Post Road was a field that served as an airstrip in the early 1920s for bi-wing aircraft. Every Sunday, the Providence Journal newspaper would deliver the Sunday edition to the airstrip and the newspapers would be flown to the residents of Block Island. In 1942, the former airport was reused by the Navy. It boasted three runways and was a satellite for the nearby Naval Air Station. At this time, night flying was in its infancy and the pilots at the time, including a future American president, were basically training to fly blind. Between 1943 and 1944, 21 planes that took off from the three runways crashed. Just about a crash every two weeks. In 1961, a local 14-year-old boy set out to find the crash site of a Grumman F6F3N Hellcat night fighter. He found the site and began to excavate the 12-foot-long engine, and in doing so, found the bones of the fighter's pilot. This started a lifelong obsession for the boy, who scoured the woods and water of South County collecting wreckage, and some say the spirits, of the downed aircraft and the pilots. Today, most of the airstrips are gone. Native grass has been reintroduced in place of most of the torn-up runways, but the area is far from abandoned. People flock to the open-space sports fields, basketball and tennis courts, the frisbee golf course, and huge playground. And that's not all. On what's left of the runway is a bike track roughly a mile long, miles of hiking trail including a paved inner loop, and well-blazed pathways reaching into the adjacent wildlife refuge and along the large salt pond. There's a dog park, a kayak launch, a freshwater pond for swimming, and because it has some of the lowest light pollution in Rhode Island, with a 360-degree view of the sky, there's an observatory open to the public every Friday night, weather permitting, of course. In the dark forest lies a secret, told in broken stories by those who have bore witness. A monster, a murder, a long-forgotten town. I'm on the search for the ghosts who haunt these places, and I want you to come along. Welcome to Tales, Trails, and Taverns. Here I take an active approach to finding places that people might warn you not to go. Haunted trails, abandoned towns, old taverns where you might catch a glimpse of a long-deceased patron. Look. You're probably not going to find me trekking through Arizona looking to have a run-in with a skinwalker, and you certainly won't catch me playing with a Ouija board, but I have been hiking, biking, running, kayaking, and swimming at the subject of this week's episode, and been to more than my fair share of haunted taverns. So lace up your boots, grab a working flashlight, and join me as I tell the tales, hike the trails, and grab a cold pint at the taverns of Charlestown, Rhode Island. So, welcome to Season 2, Episode 1, Tales, Trails, and Taverns. To start off, I'm going to read a few of the, well, all the five-star reviews that I currently have. If you'd like to go leave a five-star review, I will definitely get around to reading it in the next episode. First one, Great Job, Joseph, by mom to jay So this is, this is my mother. I love your haunted stories, and I love the bite-sized episodes. Keep it up. Thanks, Mom. I really appreciate that. <laughs> Next one is from Golgwin, Tales for Trails. I love the variety of these stories and podcast logo, smiley face. I love it too. I just spent a lot of time with a bootleg version of Adobe trying to uh, draw that up. And there's a couple different versions of it on the different social media platforms too that I put out there before I decided on the black and white one. Next one, Search Soul, fantastic storytelling. I love the way the hiking stories unfold. You feel like you're on the trail. Well, you've actually you've actually been on a couple trails with me, so... You know what it feels like to be on the trail. (laughs) 
And the last one here is Danielle from Off the Trails Podcast. Great content. These episodes are a great way to explore some trails through your headphones. Nice storytelling flow, and I really enjoy hearing about both facts and lore of these locations. And if I'm being honest, I always want to know where the good food and drink spots are, so ending with that is perfect. Well, thank you, Danielle, for saying that. I do like to go have a nice cold beer after I go hiking all day, so that is always something I look out for. So I'm assuming that you probably thought that after last week's end of season episode that I was going to take a break or something, and it is true that the colder weather means that I'll be exploring outdoor places less. It might mean that I'm exploring indoor places more, but it doesn't mean that I have any shortage of creepy and cool places on backlog, just waiting to be brought to light, so to speak. And here's the interesting thing is when I decided to write about Ninigret, I didn't know about some of its dark history. I've been to this park probably close to 100 times. I lived in Charlestown for over two years when I moved back to New England, and this park has so much recreational things to choose from that there's almost no reason not to go. Even during the pandemic, right in the beginning, remember when local government shut down everything? The town placed barriers in front of the entrance to the park, but not at the adjacent wildlife refuge. And since the trails connect when you get far enough in, you could find yourself almost alone in the park. Of course, I wasn't the only person at the time who realized this loophole, so I just gave a knowing nod to any other people out there keeping their distance too. So going back to the oral history I mentioned at the beginning, there is no written record as to when the original runway was built. The first record of there being an airport is in the Boston Chamber of Commerce's 1931 Airports and Landing Fields in New England. It was described as a commercial airport nine miles east of Westerly, and it was described as a 64-acre rectangular field, 3,340 feet by 700 feet, with a 60 by 40 foot hangar. Known as the Atlantic Airport and the Charlestown Airport, it was closed in 1939. I want to take a second to note that when you are out on the airfield, or really any open section at the park and the wind is blowing, it becomes very obvious as to why this area made for a good airport. I've been out there in all seasons, but it's especially noticeable in the winter. The wind will pick up and just hang steady. And it's bitter cold. It also feels like you could watch storm clouds coming in from New York. As I mentioned in the intro, Ninigret has a big open sky. The earliest aerial picture of the airport was taken in 1941 and showed an unpaved northeast-southwest runway and a single small building on the north end. In 1942, the Navy constructed the Charlestown Naval Auxiliary Air Station. This was a satellite airfield for the nearby Quonset Point Naval Air Station. It was used to train night fighter squadrons and was home to the Navy Air Navigation Project where they tested navigation aids and traffic control systems. As I said before, between 1943 and 1944, 21 planes that took off from the air station crashed in the woods and water of the surrounding area. In 1944, Ensign George H.W. Bush trained as a naval aviator before shipping out to the Pacific Theater during World War II. So I'm going to step off of the park and airfield for a second and take you down a personal rabbit hole. Hang on to your seat there, uh, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. I promise it's going to be worth it. So I grew up on Cape Cod, and for most of my life I knew my grandfather was a chief engineer on tugboats and traveled all around the Atlantic for work. And being on the Cape and working on the water, he had all kinds of nautical stuff all around the house. One picture on the living room wall was of a boat that sort of looked like it had a fawny sort of hull and something like a decoration draped down the side, and the number 230 on the tip of the bow. As I got older, I learned about my family's more nautical heritage. I had been named after my great-grandfather, who passed just before I was born, so... His first name was also Joe, but he went by the moniker Captain Ted. This particular Joe Gelinas had made his way from his home in Quebec and settled on New England's southern coast and eventually on Cape Cod. 
where from the early 1950s to 1968, he ran the Nantucket Express Line ferries to Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard. Affectionately known as the Tech Fleet, the three ferries of Captain Ted carried passengers on luxury cruises to and from the islands. The Catherine Tech was a former luxury yacht. The Catery Tech, who my mother is named after, had served in a former life as a Coast Guard cutter, both named for the Catholic St. Catery or Catherine Tekakwatha. The third ship, the SS Martha's Vineyard, was built at Bath Ironworks in Maine for the New England Steamship Company and was launched on July 23, 1923 and began service to Nantucket on August 3rd under the name The Islander. In 1928, the ship was renamed Martha's Vineyard and continued to sail until 1956. In 1959, the Martha's Vineyard was purchased by the Rhode Island Steamship Lines in conjunction with the Nantucket Express Line. The old steam engines were replaced with a diesel-electric engine, and the ship sailed on the Nantucket Express Line until 1968. Then, it was purchased by the Bridgeport and Port Jefferson Steamboat Company and ferried passengers from Connecticut to New York until 1986. A preservation group called the Friends of Nopska tried to purchase the ship with plans to restore it to its steamship roots and create a floating museum. Since the Nopska itself wasn't for sale at the time, its sister ship, the Martha's Vineyard, was the next best thing. The deal ultimately did not work out, and she was bought by the Massachusetts Bay Lines. Their plans had been to convert the old steamship into a dinner cruise ship. Martha's Vineyard was docked in the Charlestown-Boston Naval Dock 11 until 1990, when late one night, the boat's guardrails snagged the pier as the tide went out. Beginning to list, she started to take on water and sank at the dock, and she was scrapped in place. Stick with me. This rabbit hole eventually comes all the way back around. Out of the three of my great-grandfather's ferries, the Martha's Vineyard is the one I have verified was in fact demolished. The fate of the Catery Tech and the Catherine Tech are hitherto unknown to me. Sure, they were probably scrapped, dragged up out of the water, and sold for their weight in rusty iron, but who knows? Maybe someone will know something, and maybe a part of one of them or one of the ships is waiting to be found again. What would I do if I found one of these ships? I don't have a place to keep and restore a 100-plus-foot retired ferry, but it's fun to speculate. My grandfather passed in 2013, and none of my aunts can recall what happened to any of the ships. Anyway, in 2022, I took my son to Minnesota to visit with family. My mother and her husband live out there, along with some other family members. And on one night, Grandpa Ron and I started talking about my grandfather, and Ron starts pulling out all these old books and picture albums along with an old service manual for a diesel-electric engine setup. He started telling me a tale my grandfather had told him about the converted steamship. The engine and drive system came from a scrap naval submarine. Captain Ted had the drive system ready to go for the Martha's Vineyard, but like any good mechanic, you need the service manual to show you what needs to go where and how to maintain the equipment. So there was some pushback while trying to acquire the service documents from the Navy. Apparently they believed that a civilian shouldn't be given the schematics for a submarine, as opposed to risk, or he didn't have the proper clearance, or something along those lines. Captain Ted's response was, well, I already have the engine. So, eventually the Navy relented and gave him the manuals for the ship. In one of the picture albums was the same photo that hung on my grandfather's wall. The photo was from Kittery, Maine, taken August 25th, 1941. It was the day the USS Finback was launched. It's a weird feeling being able to punch in a few keywords online today and find a picture that hung on my grandfather's living room wall silently and without fanfare for decades. But let's go on. The USS Finback reached Pearl Harbor on May 29, 1942 from New London, and two days later was ordered out on patrol during the Battle of Midway. 
On July 5th, she made first enemy contact when they attacked two destroyers. For 24 hours, the sub was attacked with depth charges from the Japanese ships. On the verge of surrendering for lack of oxygen, the attack finally ceased. On the second patrol, the USS Finback managed to sink three ships in two engagements. She sank a ship on each of her third and fourth patrols, sank two on the fifth patrol, three on her sixth, and on her seventh patrol, and on New Year's Day in 1944, she sank the 10,044-ton tanker Ishan Maru in, the surf- in a surface attack. On the eighth and ninth patrols, she served as lifeguard for carrier airstrikes in the Caroline Islands and the Marianas operation. On her tenth patrol, she served again in lifeguard duty in the Bonins. Guided by friendly aircraft, she rescued a total of five naval aviators. One of them, a tall, lanky pilot who would later become the 41st President of the United States, George H.W. Bush. I told you this rabbit hole was going to come all the way around. After two more patrols in the Pacific, the Finback was docked at Pearl Harbor at the close of the war and sailed for New London on August 29, 1945. There, the ship served in training student mariners and in 1948, sailed to the Caribbean to take part in Second Fleet exercises. The USS Finback was decommissioned and placed on reserve on April 21, 1950. She was stricken on September 1, 1958, and sold for scrap on July 15, 1959, just in time to find her heart transplanted into the SS Martha's Vineyard for the Nantucket Express Line. Well, that felt good. And now that all those different stories have been weaved so intricately together, let's get back to uh, Ninigret Park. The Charlestown Naval Auxiliary Air Station also saw use as a landing field during the Korean War and was eventually decommissioned in 1974. During that time, a total of 62 pilots died while on training maneuvers. In 1958 and 1959, the runways were used as drag strips, but honestly, during that time, what flat, straight road wasn't being used as a drag strip? The idea of building Rhode Island's first nuclear plant was floated for a bit, but true to the Charlestown residents' aberration for development, the idea was struck down and the area was incorporated into the nearby wildlife management area. In the 1980s, the hangars were demolished. In the late 1990s, the longer sections of the runways were torn up and the native grasses and plants took their place. Ninigret Park is now an open space, free-use park. The northern section of the runway is now a bike track. Well-marked hiking trails run through the woods, down the old runways, and along the Ninigret Salt Pond. There's a dog park, a kayak launch, a freshwater pond, an updated playground, soccer fields, tennis and basketball courts, and the Frosty Drew Observatory. Open every Friday, weather permitting, from about 7 to 10 p.m. With a suggested donation of $5, you can see the most unobstructed views of the Milky Way in Rhode Island. And going back to the intro, a Charlestown native by the name of Larry found the wreckage of a fighter plane when he was 14. This sparked a lifelong obsession with wrecked aircraft. Larry spent decades scouring South County for crash sites and collected everything he could at his family's property. Larry didn't just find plane wreckage either. Many times in these horrific crashes, other military personnel would only pick up what they could find of the pilot that was easy to grab. So when Larry went to digging up plane parts, he would sometimes come across bones and other remains along with the debris. In 1969, Larry found the crash site of a Grumman F6F Hellcat in the Cedar Swamp behind Town Hall that had been flown by Naval Lieutenant Charles Stimson. Larry found an airspeed indicator that was broken from the impact, reading 330 knots when it hit the bog. Cold spring water must have helped stave off decomposition, because Larry said about digging up the crash site, I'm down there yanking on this and that, and this whole spinal column comes up flopping around. 
Around 2008, Larry got married finally in his 50s. And his wife, Patsy, started to notice strange things on the farm around where all the plane wreckage Larry had collected was stored. Orbs, shadow figures, and even a picture of a puckwudgie has been seen by Patsy and a group of paranormal investigators called in on several occasions. Now that I know all about the crashes and the ghosts that haunt the woods and swamps of Charlestown, I'm not sure that I'll be able to see the park the same way. I mean, I still enjoy it, even more so now, especially having that Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon with the park in my family's history. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I've enjoyed writing and researching it. Don't forget to leave a five-star review, follow Tales, Trails, and Taverns on all social media platforms, and until next time, get out in the forest and find your spirits. Are you struggling with a lack of access to captivating entertainment and media? Are you faced with constant judgment and ridicule from friends and family for your inability to respond appropriately to sensitive situations? If this sounds like you, you might be suffering from being emotionally dead inside. But it's not too late to make a change. One Nothing Podcast is a newly available treatment for being dead inside. Taken just once every two weeks, One Nothing could make a world of difference. By combining carefully measured dark humor to the amazing original formula of grisly fatalities, One Nothing Podcast has successfully entertained thousands of people suffering from death inside. And with access across all podcast platforms, treatment has never been more readily available. But don't trust my word. Here's some real-world testimonials from a few of our listeners currently undergoing treatment. From consistent doses of One Nothing Podcast, my posture has greatly improved due to being kept on the edge of my seat. The One Nothing Podcast comes on, everybody be like, shut the f*** up. I'll be quiet, but when the episode's over, I'll be talking again. Oh my gosh, buddy. I used to be on so many medications for blood pressure. And then I listened to One Nothing Podcast's episode on Kitty Genovese, moved into an apartment on my own, and haven't needed it since. That one really got my blood pumping. You know, listening to One Nothing Podcast, I'm I'm not constipated anymore. I'm just full of shit. So what's stopping you from great entertainment? One Nothing Podcast is not intended for all audiences. Listeners under 18 years of age should obtain permission from your parent or guardian before downloading. Tell your therapist if you're predisposed to whining, complaining, leading podcasts poorly, being overall combative, or being easily offended, as One Nothing Podcast might not be right for you. So stop letting great content pass you by. Talk to your therapist today to see if One Nothing Podcast is right for you.